So, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the IOKO Inspire series. While you're all logging in, um, if you can just say hello to each other on the uh, chat channel there so that you've got the hang of it. And as we've done in previous weeks, if you do want to ask any questions to our guest who will be introduced in a moment, then please do so on the Q&A part, because I'm more likely to pick those up. You can try it in the chat channel, but there's usually quite a bit going through on that, which doesn't make it easy to pick up. Anyway, without further ado, let me hand over to the CFO, the group CFO for EOH, Megan Padigar. <laughs> Megan, I'm so sorry. Megan Padigardu, and allow you to do the introductions. Thanks, Colin. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our third um, episode of Inspire series. We are living through particularly challenging times, and especially the last week, we've seen an escalation in cases in South Africa. Um, and as we navigate these uncertain and chaotic times, it's really important that we also find ways to bring inspiration into our, into our own days. So thank you for making the time today to watch what promises to be a highly entertaining and insightful inaugural event in our IOCO Inspire series. Last week, we spoke to Zaf Mohammed, the CELC CFO, and he shared his experiences in playing a pivotal role in designing and implementing the group turnaround for CELC. Today, we have an exceptional speaker joining us. She's an amazing lady and inspiration. Um, and uh, we will be speaking to Sneha Shah on how to grow a multinational subsidiary in Africa. As Colin said, you're welcome to post your questions in the chat for our speaker. And I'd now like to hand over to Colin Isles of Innovation Catalysts and um, Sneha Shah and Colin will be facilitating the conversation during this series. So thanks and over to you, Colin and Snare. Lovely. Thank you very much, Megan. How to grow a multinational subsidiary in Africa. We're going to come on to that in a minute, but just as a, a brief introduction to uh, Sneha for everyone that doesn't know her. If you don't know her, you've really missed out. If you've not had the opportunity to work with her or deal with her, you've really missed out. You've got to try to get her into your network for sure. One of the most incredible ladies that I've actually come across, not just because she sits in an incredibly powerful position in a multinational corporate, she's climbed the corporate ladder. She's done it in a way which I think many people really need to try to mimic. It's a very different way than what the stereotypical process is. And we're going to be going into this very much different way to the stereotypical process that white males uh, typically have gone and used before her. The story that we're going into is the turnaround that occurred for Thomson Reuters in Africa. She started in roughly 2014, uh, taking over. Within a four to five year period, that turnaround, which she's going to go through, was absolutely remarkable. Sadly, we lost her. She went back to New York and is now the global head for the business accelerator for the newly branded Refinitiv. And it's a real, real shame for us down here in South Africa and Africa generally. Snea, welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm sort of like blushing from all the, <laughs> the nice things, but um, it's been such a pleasure sort of working with you personally, Colin. And actually, I miss Africa so much and South Africa in particular, that it's a pleasure to be on the call today. So let's give some context um, before we dig into actually how you did the turnaround. Um, and maybe you can go and share how you turned something which in 2014 was probably pretty much last on the list of success stories. It was just ticking along, really going nowhere. 
and took it to something which got global presence um, with the leadership teams in Thomson Reuters, which is a phenomenal organization generating billions. Can you just give us some context and the sorts of numbers that you were able to go and take it from to and the time period? Yeah, sure. So, so Thomson Reuters has been in Africa and in South Africa for over 160 years, right? Starting with the news presence of Reuters, which most people know, and then growing into the financial markets. And um, they, they had a sales office in Johannesburg, which was really the um, sort of, I guess, the representat- representation office um, on the continent. But it was very much a place where you could sell the global product. It wasn't really a local office in, in the full sense of the word. And so in 2013, when they asked me to come and run the business and they said, you know, it's a really high growth market and there's so much potential and it'd be amazing for you to go back to Africa. I'm, I'm originally from Kenya. And they said, it'd be great for you to go back to Africa and help the grow the business. And I, and I jumped at the challenge because I really believed in the potential of a global business like Thomson Reuters, which is all around data and information on this continent. But when I got there, um, you know, I found myself on an apology tour for the first six months with customers, because what we'd done is we hadn't listened to customers. We'd kind of foisted global products onto local markets without really understanding anything from pricing to context to readiness um, to, to what the customer need really was. Um, we had not hired um, in a way that was representative of our local markets. Um, you know, we had a head office in Johannesburg, um, which was mostly staffed by uh, white people and expats, not really by local people. And then we didn't really have offices in the rest of Africa. We were trying to run Africa from Joburg, which in my experience is as bad as trying to run it from London or New York. And, and we really hadn't um, put any thought into what an Africa strategy might look like. And so going from there, which, you know, to the board, it didn't look so bad because it was still growing at 3% compared to the US or UK growing at between 1% and 2%. It didn't look too bad. But going from there to what we knew the potential was, which was easily double-digit growth um, on the continent, was, was really quite a series of different things that we had to put in place. And it started with you know, purpose, then it moved on to people, um, and eventually resulted in profit. So I feel like that's where um, the, you know, the story, the, the turnaround really was kind of tackling everything that we did and how we did it but starting really with purpose. So let's, let's just put that in context. So you mentioned that your kind of annualized growth there was in the kind of two or 3% doldrums. What was it when you left? So it was between 13 and 14% when I left on an annualized basis. And, and that was year on year. And that was you know, consistent for the last three years that I was there. And, um, and you know, it's all organic. So no acquisitions in that number um, and highly profitable as well. So our profit margin was significantly above the group uh, profit margin um, on the continent as well. And when you arrived, you know, two to three percent, I mean, that's less than inflation. And many people, if we, especially if we go back a few years, were saying that Africa is the high growth market, you know, globally. This is the place to invest because the opportunities are vast and untapped. So you're looking at this as you've just flown in thinking, how on earth are we only managing to kind of go along at this two, three percent, essentially going backwards when you put inflation into it? What was your kind of first take as to how they'd got into that particular position? So I think when I landed, I was really struck by a few things. I remember my husband walking into my office the first day and and just looking around and saying, is this a sales office? And I said, yes, why? And he says, there's no energy in here. There's like zero energy. And, And it really was because most people in the office were so used to the standard answer for anything that you asked for from Africa. So if a client had come 
and sort of said, hey, I want this changed in the product um, and you push it into the global system, like your, your requests are always at the bottom of the system because Africa wasn't high revenue and all of our prioritization at the global level was done by revenue. And so, you know, there was a lot of morale issues. Um, there was really a sense of um, a lack of team locally. There was a lot of, you know, if you asked sort of if you lost an account and you asked the person who was supposed to be the customer success manager um, what happened, they would blame the account manager. The account manager would blame the salesperson who'd oversold. And there was a lot of that going on. Um, and then when we spoke to customers, almost always I had, I had to deal with angry customers. Like I, I, I went into a situation where I just literally felt on the back foot. And, and when I started looking at what was going on and why that was, I found that our customers didn't really trust us. They felt that we'd been this global business in Africa just for our own purposes and, and to really try and take advantage of them. They felt that we'd built um, you know, a really strong position in foreign exchange over the years and that we weren't giving them really choices in, in who to deal with or how to deal with us. They weren't, we weren't listening to them. Our people didn't feel empowered. They didn't feel heard and they couldn't see career paths in the company. And so that's kind of when I started diagnosing what it was, um, it wasn't really that we had the wrong products for the market. I mean, there was some of that too, but it, it really came down to an issue of trust, um, both for customers and for our people. Did you at that point wish that you hadn't taken the role? There were moments in the first six months where I was like, uh, why did I bring my family here? Like, this is really, you know, is this really the right decision? And um, are we going to be able to turn this around? There's lots of doubt that you have. Um, you know, and especially because you hear about all the obstacles. And I think this is the challenge that most multinationals face in Africa is you see the macroeconomic numbers, which look amazing. And you see the, the numbers around, you know, the percentage of youth and the percentage of um, sort of consumers and the, the sort of the growth rates of each country. Um, and you get excited because you see the potential market and then you land and you realize, you know, regulation and corruption and access to talent and some of the things that you really struggle with are hard realities. And so you become despondent and some multinationals, they, they give up, right? And others choose to behave in ways that aren't sustainable. Um, but I think, you know, although I felt despondent, I was really committed to try and make a change. Now, I'm, I'm just guessing here because this is the approach which is used, uh, I don't know, since time immemorial. You have a look at this backdrop. The first thing to do is to go and say, yes, there is opportunity here and put some profit targets down, some margin targets to go and reassess the KPIs for the, the sales team. And off you go. You start driving forcefully in that direction and using the numbers to, you know, the numbers to, to whip people into shape. Is that the approach that you took? Absolutely not. I think, you know, I knew that having worked with different teams across the years from our media business to, to parts of our financial business globally, that like focusing on the numbers is the, probably the worst way to get the numbers that you want. Um, because what happens is you haven't addressed the core issue of why people show up at work and why they're going to go, you know, to, to sort of bat for you as a leader. And so the, the way that we addressed this was I first pulled my uh, then leadership team into the room and I said, guys, we have to stop behaving like a small subsidiary of a global business, right? This is never going to get us where we want to go. We all have this dream of, you know, what we want this business to be. And, and we need to articulate that. But actually, the first thing we need to do is stop behaving like we're sort of, you know, the, the redheaded stepchild of a large global organization. Um, we have to start behaving like a startup looking for private equity funding. And, and, and our mindset has to shift. And, and then starting to think about what would that actually mean? If we were a startup in Africa looking at the opportunity ahead of us, you know, what would be our purpose? What would be the reason why we existed? 
what would be our, our sort of main goals and what we were trying to do? What would be our focus areas? What would be the things that we would need from the global organizations? And then we spent um, sort of two to three months just sitting with customers and, and really trying to understand what are the big problems that our customers are facing on the continent and how do we translate that back into what does it mean for a company that serves up information and data on the continent? And some of the issues we heard were things that, you know, land rights, was a big issue that we heard that people were saying, as an investor, I don't feel safe um, investing in a, in a country where I don't have access to land rights. Um, corruption was a big one. I don't really know who I'm dealing with. I don't know how I'm doing business with. Illiquidity, I don't have access to foreign exchange. I don't have access to sort of ability to, to control how I enter and exit markets. Um, and then lack of development, right? There was a lot of thinking around financial markets and data around financial markets is either not accessible or it's not... Um, it's not sophisticated enough to compete at a global level. And, and so listening to all of that, we then came back and said, okay, if we were a startup trying to solve this, what would we do? And, and we said, okay, actually what we do is start to A, develop the market, because if you don't make the market more sophisticated, right, or you don't make it ready for the products that you have, you're never going to get them there. But actually more importantly, listen to the problems and see if we can solve them in a creative way that doesn't require us to just shove more global product down their throats. And then sort of thirdly, actually sit around the table and talk about why are we all here? Like, why do we get up in the morning? And I remember the first conversation we had, there was myself and the head of sales at the time um, and, and a few other people around the table. And I was saying, there's got to be more that we're doing here, right? Other than shareholder value and profit, like there has to be more that we can do on the continent. And, and someone asked me the question of, oh, you want to put shoes on the feet of African children? And I said, yes, actually, um, but I, I want to do more. I want to grow this continent in a way that's sustainable. I want this to be a continent where my children can have access to all the things that I found difficult growing up in Kenya, where you know, I had to go overseas for an education because I, I really struggled to find competitive education in the continent. I want my children to have a different experience. And so you know, starting to think about what that was for each of us and, and actually why we got up, we found some amazing gems. Like, you know, one person said, my daughter thinks that I, I basically build ATMs because when you talk about financial markets to a five-year-old, that's what they think of. And, and he said, I don't want her to think that. I want her to think that I'm doing something to change economies. And, and how do I do that? And so we started to build our purpose from there. And, and we came up with this idea of the purpose being empowering Africa um, you know, from a data and an information perspective. So allowing it to be a global player from, a, from an information and data perspective equally to every other global market um, that's out there. And so that became our real mantra and mission and, and purpose. And from there, we grew everything else. So when you start with this empowering Africa with data and you're getting into these clients, you know, discussions, you said at the start, a lot of the clients were very uncomfortable. What sorts of issues you know, did you find when you were having these discussions with clients? So there was a lot of um, issue with local presence. I mean, over the years, you know, with global companies, you get a surge where you say, I'm going to start a local office here and then I'm going to pull back. And in Mauritius, for example, we'd had a local presence and then we'd pulled back. And, and I remember the central bank had called us in and, and the governor was very irate um, at the fact that we wanted to do business in a market, but we weren't willing to put in um, enough investment into that local market um, and actually grow sort of the talent in Mauritius. It was a big passion of his um, that actually Mauritians should be given access to these multinational opportunities. And, and so that was one example. In Kenya, we heard that, you know, we were treating the central bank as a, uh, as a bank. We were going in there going, you know, take our data. It's going to make you more profitable. And central bank's like, we're not 
a profit entity. Like you don't even understand what a regulator does. And your people are coming in here and talking to us about this. In Nigeria, it was that the local market had been asking for a product for years. And we just kept giving them what we already had on the shelf, um, as opposed to listening to what they really wanted. And there was a lot of frustration around that. And in South Africa, it was very much a sense of we were arrogant. We wouldn't listen. Um, we didn't really hear where the local market was going. We weren't competitive. We weren't agile. Um, and so we were hearing, you know, versions of the same story again and again. Did you find that you actually lost more money when you first started as you're getting into negotiations with customers who were complaining about either expensive billing, being overbilled, inconsistent billing, billing for services that they're not particularly interested in or didn't even know they have? Did you have those sorts of issues? I had, I had some really difficult decisions to make in that regard. Um, I, there was one customer in particular who felt that the salesperson who'd come in under the previous regime had actually overbilled them. Um, and the way they'd done that was by building C-level relationships in the organization, getting the C-suite to buy in to these like crazy contracts, and then making, sh you know, making sure that they got signed, but then not following up with the users. And so there were lots of uh, sort of contracts sitting there with no usage against them. And, and we had to really make a hard decision of, are we prepared to sort of really annoy the client? Because the client was locked in to a contract for two years. Are we prepared to annoy them by saying, that's fine, you signed the contract, you were very aware of what you signed? Or actually, were we prepared to do something different and listen? And, and the risk there is obviously that took a huge, that, that took a whole toll on my revenue. Um, and so the risk there is really that you take a, a hit in our global business where then they're like, well, what's the point of sending her there if she can't grow the business? Um, but, but the reality is I knew that I had to rebuild trust. And so I ended up taking a hit on the revenue in the first six months with a number of clients. And I had explained that internally as just saying, look, we really need to do some cleanup and we need to rebuild trust. Otherwise, we're going to continue to bleed um, for a while. And so it's better to do it now. And then what we also did with salespeople was we said, if there's anything that's in your desk that you're hiding, a cancellation that you haven't put in, or an unhappy client that we don't know about, you know, you have amnesty for the next three months. And as long as you bring it to the table, we're not going to penalize you. Um, after three months, if we find stuff that you've been sitting on, that's uncomfortable or bad conversations that we need to have, um, then we will start penalizing people. And it was unbelievable the amount of stuff that came out. Um, but it really allowed me to then get a handle on how bad the situation was. Yeah, this is incredible. So I'm just imagining I'm placing myself in London in head office now. We're very excited about your your role and you coming down to South Africa. And then in the first couple of months, I'm getting some very strange stories because rather than chasing profit, you've pivoted to this purposeful endeavor. You want to put shoes on some of the children in Africa so they don't have to live a life like you saw in Kenya. You've got this empowering Africa with, with data. And then on top of that, to generate goodwill with clients, you start dropping revenue. And for other clients, looking at increasing, no doubt, your infrastructure costs to go and, and support them. How on earth did you get them over the line that this was the right approach? So it was a really difficult conversation. I think the, the first global sales conference that I went to where our CEO was speaking and, you know, I was sort of in the audience and someone asked, you know, there's, we've been hearing some rumors about our Africa growth strategy. Can you talk to us about that? And the, the, the CEO said, Africa will be interesting in 10 years. Like literally that was his answer to the question. And I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of my brand. <laughs> so I, I then came back and I thought really carefully about if I'm a startup looking for private equity, how do I change that story? Because that's effectively my investor. And I have to get him to understand that Africa is more than a 10-year future story. 
And as much as they were willing to sort of let me flex a little bit on the customer satisfaction piece, they didn't see the potential. And so we then built a very deliberate map of every one of our stakeholders at our executive team uh, level, as well as the board. And we sat there and said, who are the people that might be interested in Africa or might care about emerging market growth? And why would they care? And we built a very deliberate map of, of all those people. And we found people on the board that we thought would be very open to it, including the chairman of the board. And then we found you know, the CEO, our, our CFO, and, and various other people um, that we really felt that we could tap into. And the story we had to tell to them, we realized was one of opportunity now in Africa. Because if you make it opportunity in 10 years, sure, you'll get lots of leeway around the revenue growth, and it could be very comfortable. But the reality is we would never get to tell the story of, of a growth business in Africa. And so um, the way we did that was really to, to sort of start inviting some of them down. Because I think one of the, the beautiful things about this continent is when you're on the ground in Nigeria or you're on the ground in Johannesburg and you see the logos of all the professional companies that are down here, right? Like all the international companies that are sort of in, in Johannesburg or in Nigeria, you see the bustle and you see the real energy um, that's in that market or in Kenya, you actually can't deny that there's something going on. And so we, we found ways to invite them down for customer speaking engagements, for conferences, um, and then really started to get their buy-in. But then we started to weave a story of what does opportunity now look like? And, and how do we build proof points of what opportunity now looks like? Um, and we started using competitor stories, customer stories, and then started building out our own use cases as we were able to find those wins. So was that a definitive strategy? I mean, we had uh, Zaf Mohammed from Celsi on last week. He was talking about stakeholder engagement and how important it was or is for him. Was this equally important for you? Absolutely. This, this was something that each one of us on our leadership took on where we said, let's map. We spent time in our leadership team mapping why do they care? What do they care about? Why do they care? And how are we going to get them to care about Africa? And, and then we designated each person in the leadership team to actually manage one of those relationships. And so the same way that you do this for customers, I mean, the best salespeople will do this map for their customers, um, you know, and, and have somebody within their organization map to someone in the customer organization. And we did the same thing for our board and for our executive committee. Um, and, and then, you know, very quickly, within six months, we were able to really understand what it would take for each of them to be behind the story. And then we built, uh, we asked for a slot at the, the sort of the board to, to make a case for Africa investment. And then we went with the story. Um, and one of the things we did, a lot of people go in with these Africa growth ambitions where they say, I want to double the size of our business and I need therefore, you know, X amount of huge investment. And we said, actually, a startup doesn't do that. A startup says, I'm going to get to this milestone. I'm going to prove that I'm credible and then you can invest more. And so we were very deliberate in our asks around, you know, milestone asks, not asking for too much. Because if we'd asked for, we were 70 people at the, at the time across the whole continent. If we asked for another 150, we wouldn't even be able to hire them and train them in time. Um, and then we would kind of, you know, scupper our own ambition. And so we said, you know, let us, you know, give us 20 heads, see what we do with it. Let us do this partnership, see what we do with it, and then we'll keep coming back to you. And they really bought into that idea of, you know, investing as they saw the returns. Um, and that was very successful for us. Yeah, very interesting that, I mean, I rarely see or hear about companies putting so much effort on internal stakeholder management, but it's so important. So you've got the, uh, the big wigs in line and they're starting to come around to it. They're being indoctrinated with the stories and the purpose and the potential of being part of this incredible journey. What about the guys on the ground? Because every time I've experienced when a new 
foreign manager comes in to an environment, there's a bit of a kind of imposter syndrome that's going on. People are kind of trying to back away. How, what actually happened when you came down? Yeah, so I think it was really funny. I, I have an amazing partner in HR in South Africa, and I used to literally see her every morning. Um, she was my conscience. Um, and, and, you know, every evening before we went home, we would chat. And I would say to her, so what are people saying about me? And, and you know, the first three, three weeks or four weeks, she said to me, okay, I need to say this to you. She said, I don't know how, but she said, everyone says you're very demanding. You're very American. You're coming in here and you're very demanding. And, um, and, and we actually don't know if anyone's going to be able to keep up with your demands. And I was like, ooh, that's like, you know, and in, in my head, as much as that was like an ooh moment for me, in my head, I was like, demanding is good, right? Like, it means I'm being ambitious and I'm, and I'm asking for more and therefore I'm raising the bar. But then I realized actually I wasn't going to bring people with me if I, if I was demanding. And so I started to listen to people and say, okay, what is it that we should do differently? And, and I had multiple layers of listening to do. So one was from a local perspective, how did the people in our organization that were representative of the countries that we were in, how did they feel about career prospects? And, and so that's in Kenya. How did the Kenyans feel about their career prospects in Nigeria, in South Africa, et cetera? Um, the second part of listening that I had to do was really around the youth agenda because I had 67% of my staff were millennials. And so, you know, trying to run a town hall, I had the most incredible experience of I would set up these town halls and people wouldn't show up. And I was like, why aren't people showing up? We should make it mandatory. And so I made it mandatory and they still didn't show up. And, and then I started saying, well, I'm going to take registration and we're going to check who's there. And, and eventually one of the, the really impressive young people in my organization took me to the side and said, listen, people aren't showing up because you're not adding value to their day. Um, they're not showing up because actually we do everything on our mobile phones and we'd rather be out with customers than sitting to an, listening to an internal town hall. And you're not, you're not engaging with us. You're just telling us stuff from head office. I don't really understand why I should show up on your town hall. And so I said, okay, how do we do this differently? And we then created, um, we, we got a couple of sort of the young people in our organization together and we decided to create a Facebook group and we did Facebook lives. Instead of running town halls, we actually created a Facebook community that was closed of our employees where actually when you went to a client meeting, you could do a selfie with the client and post that. And if you had a sales win, you could post it on Facebook. And, you know, we, we really started creating those mechanisms. I mean, these days it might be Instagram or even TikTok, but you know, back in the day, it was Facebook. And, and we changed the employee engagement factor. Um, it was unbelievable. We then started having Monday stand-up calls that were led by one of the staff members, and, and we would Facebook live them. And so even if people weren't in the room, they could join in. And, and so those were the, some, some of the listening things we really needed to do differently. Um, and, you know, the hard issue around sort of racial representation um, in the workplace. That was a really tough one. And we had to grapple with it on many, many um, different aspects. You know, everything from how we're hiring, how we're promoting, um, who are we celebrating? You know, what are the metrics we're putting in place for managers? Like it was, a, that was probably one of the hardest things we had to do around people. How long when you're uh, changing these approaches, do you think it took before the team started buying into it and you could see or feel a shift where there was a lot more community happening? So I joined in July 2013 in South Africa. And I think the hardest, the lowest point for me was probably December 2013. I think that was the point at which kind of reality had hit home. And I really felt like I, I wasn't getting anywhere. And all these little things that I was trying weren't really getting traction. And then the turning point came in, in Q1 of 2014. 
And because people started to see that the small things were starting to make a difference. So, you know, the Facebook lives were starting to work. I had talked about um, BE being really important to us in South Africa and actually putting a visible scorecard in place and saying to people, I'm going to be transparent with you about where we are. We were a level six at the time and, and say, you know, our ambition is to get to a level two. We knew as a multinational because we couldn't give stock locally um, that we were going to struggle to ever get to a level one, but we, we had an ambition to get to a level two. And we were very clear on what our ambition was and the ambition to try and drive, you know, Kenyan talent in Kenya and South African talent in South Africa and, and gender-based um, diversity as well. And so the, the shift really started coming because people started to see, hey, you, you know what? You're saying what you want to do. You're being transparent with us. You're telling us there's a problem and you're showing us in, in the way that you behave that something's different. And I think by March of 2014, I felt like things were really shifting in a different direction. And did everyone come on the journey or did you lose some people because they just couldn't wrap their heads around it? One of the things about purpose that I think is incredible, and Simon Sinek says this um, too, which is purpose helps you to find the people who should be on your journey and who, who shouldn't, right? So when you say my mission is to empower Africa, um, the people that really are there to just drive a profitable business and shake the shareholder value who don't really have purpose in their DNA will go find somewhere else to work because we weren't necessarily the, the top you know, higher uh, or the top payer in the market. And, and so talent will find, you know, the place that it needs to be. And we found that that was something that, you know, in the beginning, we churned a lot of people and, and we would look at these uh, metrics that we were sort of measuring and we were measuring against how many of our top talent can we retain. And then I said, actually, is that really the metric we want? Because actually it's not about, do you retain the talent? It's do you retain the people that really believe what you believe? Um, and actually for everybody else, they become part of our network. These people were going to our customers, to our partners um, and, and to industry. And so rather than sort of saying, oh, we want to keep them here at all costs, saying, actually, let's create, um, you know, a talent um, alumni network and, and let's make sure that we stay in touch with them and that we pull them into things where it's relevant. But actually, it's OK for them to move on. It's, it's necessary and right for their own personal development, that they go to where their purpose is drawn. And the people that are attracted to our purpose will naturally join us. And so we did see some, some real turnover in the beginning. But once you've got that mission in mind, which is the people who are drawn to you will, will, will sort of stay with you, they do actually stay with you. Um, and so then, you know, you see a lot more flattening of that talent curve um, over time. Did you feel you lost some really good people? We did, but actually I don't think of them as lost. Hard? Is that difficult to let them go? It is. It's always hard because you feel like, you know, you're in a continent where it's hard to, you know, find people who can work in a multinational context, um, who, who sort of understand the local markets well enough. And there's always a war for talent um, in, in sort of that kind of uh, group. And so one of the things um, we had to sort of really face is some of them went to competitors. And so we were helping to build our competitors' talent base as well as our own. Um, and, th and that was really hard. And so I guess there was a bit of a reckoning there of, you know, what are the things that we did wrong? Because if those people were good and they left us um, and, you know, was, you know, it wasn't all just about actually they didn't believe in what we believe. Some of them were just not treated well or we didn't give them enough opportunity. What were those things that we could fix? Um, but then actually it gave us a real impetus to grow talent. And we started a new graduate scheme um, where we worked with a number of banks and we said, you know what, we actually have um, an ambition to grow the, the graduate population in financial services across the financial industry. And so we will take in, we were a small organization, I mentioned 70 people. I said, but we'll take in 20 graduates a year on a two-year scheme 
And over the year, we'll actually put them in front of you. We'll, you know, we'll make them your client success managers. We'll give them training in financial services. And then we'll end up hiring about half of them. And the rest will actually open up to you in the market um, as talent for your business. And, and over the five years, um, we actually saw so many of them go into our customers as well as growing our own talent base. And once you have homegrown talent, and that talent sees, actually, I grew from here from the beginning, um, you actually retain more of that talent as well. Now, you said that you went from B rating six down to two, which is absolutely incredible. One of the many excuses organizations and leadership teams often provide is we just can't find the talent. The talent is there. That's on our (laughs) board level, our exco level, our first level down, our second level down. It's just full of middle to aging white males. If it was a better education system, we would have better diversity. We would have more blacks, more females. How did you deal with that? Because you've made that transition from a company which might have been small, which presumably was pretty much made of that kind of that breakdown, that kind of overly white male population and taking it to something which is radically different. How, how did you do that? How did you get support for that? And, and how did you succeed? So I've, I've never believed that talent isn't accessible. I, I think actually the opportunity um, is, is what's not accessible, right? Talent exists everywhere in the world. You can find talented developers in Nigeria as much as you can in New York. Um, and, you know, there, there are now startups that, that prove that, um, that, that work on these models. But, and, and you actually, in this new post-COVID era, you're going to find that global talent pools are a really an increasing trend. And if, you know, companies want to tap into the, the talent that's out there, they should really start thinking about how is their organization using a global talent pool um, that now can access anything virtually. But, but I knew that the talent was there. Right. You see it when you walk into customers or you look at competitors or you look at the market, the talent's always there. You're just not tapping into it in the right way. And so one of the big things we did, I mean, I think if there's one single change that we made that drove a change in the diversity of our employee profile, it was diverse candidate slates. We said, you know, trying to change the metric around how many people are you hiring or how many people at what level and and, and trying to force quotas wasn't going to work for us as an organization. Um, the culture in our organization is very much merit-based and we wanted to make sure that we kept that culture. And, and so we said, actually, diverse candidate slates is a really good tool and it's proven over years to do a good job. So we said it's now mandatory that for any role, three out of five of the candidates you interview have to be diverse and you have to prove that you interviewed diverse candidates. And so managers were measured and HR would give us a report every month on how many candidates were um, interviewed for each role and how diverse they were. And so what that drove is, it drove a change in manager behavior because now you have to look. You can still hire whoever you want. You weren't penalized for not hiring the diverse candidate, but you have to look. Um, And you have to prove that you looked. And then um, in order to do that, you then put pressure on the recruiters to bring you diverse candidates. And we stopped working with recruiters. We called all of our recruiters into the office on one day, which they were all a little bit surprised at, like, oh, looking at each other, like, oh, okay, you work with them too. And we said, we actually don't want to work with any of you if you can't comply with this diverse candidate slate principle. And, and it really put them on notice and they could see that we had choices. Um, and that changed the game with the recruiters that we ended up working with. It also puts pressure on universities and your graduate recruiting scheme because suddenly now you have to cre- increase the pool. So it starts to drive that behavior as well. And as you start hiring, because automatically once you see the diverse talent, you will hire it. And, and that's proven, right? Once managers start looking, they do hire it. 
once you start hiring those diverse managers, those diverse managers recruit diverse um, like people into their teams. So it becomes self-sustaining. So after we did that one measure, we changed the entire profile of our, of our business. You know, when I left, the employee population was almost, I think, 70% um, black across Africa and um, 30% black across the leadership team which was unheard of when I started. Um, and we were 53% women um, at the end. And actually on the youth um, proportion, we were about 50% in the leadership team um, came into that millennial grouping as well. So it just starts to show you that actually you can attack diversity with just one metric. And if you just focus on it, um, you can drive a big change. How did you deal with the emotional side of that? You know, did you get external help for that journey? I mean, that, that's a kind of metric KPI that you've put in to, to really direct a sort of behavior. How did you get the buy-in from staff to realize that some of them actually are incredibly privileged and perhaps it's unconscious to them, but it was a massive advantage in their careers and they had to be more aware. What did you do to get that discussion opened? I think if we did spend money on, on our training budget on anything, um, in the five years, the, the majority of the money was spent on culture training. And, and it was everything from getting coaches. We actually got coaches for each one of our executive team. Um, and we did it by actually bringing in a group of eight coaches that we vetted. And then we did like a dating um, game type um, thing where we actually spent, everyone got to spend time with the eight coaches and then choose the coach that they wanted. And so we gave them coaches and, and you know, that was a very deliberate move. And we chose coaches that really drove this idea of culture um, we brought in external culture experts, um, and then we spent a lot of time doing self-awareness sessions. So we would start, for example, town halls or these, these group meetings with exercises. One of the, the most powerful exercises we did was the one, you might have seen the video of it, where you start at a starting line, and then you say, okay, we're going to run a race. But actually, before we run the race, everyone who's grown up with both parents in the household, take a step forward. You know, if you didn't have to pay for your own education, take a step forward. Um, if you didn't um, sort of, you know, if you didn't grow up in a, in a poor neighborhood, take a step forward. And, and so we kind of gave them all these instructions and we found that the people who were at the front, by the time we said, actually, the race is about to start, the people at the front, we asked them to look around and say, you know, that's privilege because you didn't earn any of that. That's nothing to do with anything that you did to earn that. That was something that was given to you that nobody else has. And so you're starting from an unequal place. And, and we found that the more we gave these self-awareness exercises to people, the more they were able to sort of change their own behavior and self-regulate as opposed to having to be driven. That's absolutely incredible. They obviously worked. What didn't yeah. work? During that journey, you must have done lots of things which you'd look back and, and just shudder. Lots of things. I, I think, you know, one of the, the interesting things about trying to be innovative in a, in a high growth market is you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, one of the big things I did initially was I um, started hiring people for my leadership team. As much as I, I think I, I drive diversity, ultimately all of us try and hire people who think like us, right? And, and, and the mistake I made, um, although people were, were physically diverse, was I hired people that were all risk takers because I was like, I'm running a growth business. I need a bunch of risk takers to run a growth business. And I had uh, two people on my team that were, you know, the, the legal person and uh, my HR person that were less risk averse. And um, very early on when we would have these open sessions around what's working, what isn't working in the leadership team, um, they would be very quiet. And I would take quiet as, oh, you're going along with the plan. And then my coach said to me, uh, maybe they're quiet because they don't feel included and they don't feel part of your table. And, and so we actually did an exercise where we gave a little box 
around the table with two pieces of paper, one that says safe and not safe. And we went around the table in the leadership team and we said, everyone just put in one of those papers into the box. And do you feel safe to speak up around this table? And, and I was really shocked at the result. Um, actually, not only the two people that I thought would say it's not safe, but most of my team said it's not safe to speak up in this room. And it was because we'd hired a bunch of risk takers who all believed their point of view was really important and that you know, they wouldn't really listen to each other. And so that was an adjustment I had to make about eight months into my journey of just saying, okay, we need to change the culture here because we want this to be a safe space. And I, as the leader, am responsible for creating a space that is safe. Um, and so, you know, putting a lens onto my own um, biases, which all of us have, and, and actually realizing that was what was driving the behavior and being a lot more thoughtful around when I hire, how am I hiring people that really are different to me? But then actually, how am I giving them a voice so that they can feel safe to speak up? And so one of the things I did, for example, with one of my um, people was I said, I said, you need to tell me when I'm not making you feel comfortable. And, and she said to me, you know, okay, I'm going to tell you I've got this. And if I tell you I've got this, it means back off, leave me alone, and, and we're going to be good. And, and so I developed these um, code words with people in my team that were really around them holding me accountable um, for behavior that they didn't see was productive. And that completely changed the equation in our team. What was the biggest mistake that you made, do you think? So as I mentioned, I've made lots. But I also think that mistakes are how you grow. Biggest one. Um, <laughs> so... So, and I, and I, I don't shy away from talking about mistakes because I actually think if you're going to be agile, you know, right now I run the accelerator program, which is all around innovation. And if you're really going to do innovation, right, you have to embrace the fact that we're all human and we're going to make mistakes. And, and the important thing is what you learn. But the biggest mistake I made is coming into the continent. And in Nigeria, I didn't listen to clients, even after I sort of went on my listening tour, you know, that sometimes I call my apology tour, I really didn't listen to the Nigerian market. And they were telling us they wanted a fixed income product that was different from what we were offering. And we just kept saying, well, we just have to educate them. We just have to get them trained. We just have to bring them along to what we have. And, you know, about seven months into my journey there, um, the market sent me an incredibly powerful message by kicking us out of that part of the market. Um, and, and they all got together. I mean, just think about how annoyed your customers must be to all get together and decide to kick you out of a market. Like, that's bad. It's really appalling. And, and you know, that was a, a real aha moment for me of what does listening really mean? Is listening listening and then putting my own interpretation or is listening really saying when a client says to you, I want a different product, actually doing what they're telling you to do? And so we shifted our approach in Nigeria completely um, hiring local talent, working with the market to rebuild trust. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that we, we came to a very different place with that market um, by the time I left. But, you know, even to the point that I earned a Nigerian name, uh, Yetunde, which, you know, if you work in Nigeria, you know that actually by the time they give you a Nigerian name, you're in. And, and Yetunde means mother who came back, which is also very meaningful sort of in, in terms of the journey that we took with that market. But how do you get the resilience to do this? I mean, a lot of the things that you're saying people can dream of doing, but very few are able to do this. They're, they're unable to listen, to have such self-awareness, to be willing to change, to, to be comfortable with recognizing that they've also got unconscious bias and certain privileges. Certainly very few people will, as openly as you are on this call, talk about some of the big mistakes that have been made, where, where do you find the resilience um, to, to be like this? Because this is huge risk in many people's eyes. 
I think, I think knowing your own purpose really matters, right? So as much as we talk about business purpose, understanding your own purpose. And my purpose is very much tied to people, which is why, you know, when I talk about business, I always talk about purpose, people, and profit. And profit is the outcome, not the goal. Um, but, but purpose and people will give you profit. And, and my purpose is really to unlock potential in, in people. And so recognizing that in myself, that means I need to be self, self-aware to do that, right? You can't achieve your purpose if you're not self-aware. And one of the, the great people I've, I've read and, and listened to is Brene Brown. And she talks about courage and vulnerability. And she says, you know, courage people think of as bravado. And courage is like, oh, let me put a, big fa- a brave face on or let me, you know, put my game face on. And she said, actually, true courage is vulnerability and leadership. And if you look at the most successful leaders, they are vulnerable. Mandela was vulnerable. You know, uh, Obama is vulnerable. Like so, some really strong leadership that we were talking earlier about um, the COVID leadership. And, and you see some of the countries that have come through this so far the best are led by women who really understand the importance of vulnerable leadership. And, and so I think that's the idea is that the more, the more we're open to that vulnerability and we see that as courage, as bravery, as taking a risk um, on ourselves in order to grow a market, the more um, actually we'll see the rewards of that. Now, you're running the show in Africa. Um, you've got freedom. Now you're back in New York. How does it compare going back into the lion pit? It was tough. I have to say my, my sort of departure from Africa wasn't entirely of my own making. Um, Thomson Reuters was acquired by Blackstone, or part of Thomson Reuters was acquired by Blackstone um, in late 2018. And um, the Africa business was split in half. And there was a massive restructure, which meant there wasn't really a need for a managing director in Africa anymore. And, and so, you know, I kind of came back a little bit kicking and screaming in, into New York going, I really want to stay connected to Africa. And one of the mentors I've got who's, who's truly uh, phenomenal. It's um, Rabbi Gideon uh, Pogran at the Gibbs um, sort of ethics institute. He said to me, he said, one of the, the largest challenges we have in life is letting go. He says, um, but actually your, your body is wired for letting go. Um, he says, actually, when you age, when you grow from being a child to a teenager, you don't like go, oh my God, I don't want to be a child forever. And you know, when you get gray hair, you know, mostly you don't say, oh my God, I've got gray hair. I can't cope. Um, you, you adapt quite easily to these situations. And he said, the quicker you lean into what the new looks like and let go of the old, the happier you're going to be. He said, it's not going to change, you know, how hard it's going to be, but actually the happier you're going to be in the process. And it's something I really took to heart when I came into New York was the realization of a, you know, Africa isn't a place for me. It's a, it's a context. It's something that I can stay connected to from anywhere in the world. And actually it's proven in this environment on this call, right? I'm still very connected. I, I work with a number of accelerators on the continent um, with startups. I stay connected to my people in Africa um, and, you know, customers, partners, and, and my, my team um, and really have enjoyed watching them grow. And so I realized that that was something I could keep with me even as I moved to New York. Um, but actually embracing the opportunity in New York to tell the Africa story and to bring some of the same principles to life in a global context um, it's really helped me kind of be happier in this new place. There's a great question that's just come in here. Actually, we've got two great questions, but this one um, sits nicely with this part of the conversation. Um, unfortunately, it's anonymous, but it's a great question. You have such a confident outlook on the way business should be handled. It shows tremendous maturity and courage. How can we assist and manage upwards the management team that don't have that kind of foresight and maturity that you've got? So what, what do you do in that <laughs> situation? Thank you. 
Thank you. And, and, and actually, I'm just going to show you one thing here, which is I've got this man behind me. Um, it's, it's a portrait of Mandela by a South African artist I absolutely adore called Conrad Bowe. And it's a reminder to me of, of the wisdom of Mandela. And one of the things he said that I hold dear is that when you speak to a man in his language, you speak to his head. Oh, sorry, when you speak to a man in a language he understands, you speak to his head. When you speak to him in his language, you speak to his heart. And when you talk to management, if you speak in your language, and, and you know, as much as you feel like management's immature, they're not there, when you speak to them and try and get across your point of view, but you don't really understand where they are, and you don't speak in their language, you're not going to be effective. Whether you're right or wrong is besides the point. Um, and so you have to go to where they are. So when I spoke to our group CFO, in Thomson Reuters, I didn't talk about the purpose of Africa because, you know, he could give two hoots about purpose. He cared about the financial results. And so when I spoke to him, I would talk about the opportunity now, right? The opportunity in Africa now is this. The thing we're missing, our competitors are doing is this. Um, I had one strategy for Africa around our, our fixed income and auction strategy, and I called it the fight of the century. And on the cover of my strategic deck was two lions fighting, and I said, I said, you know, it's going to be us or the competition that's going to win this battle. Who do you want to win? And, and I spoke to the competitive nature of our senior executive team um, in that. And so you have to speak to them in their language um, and, and the message will resonate then. When was it, do you think, that you started to get the real buy-in from London and, and from New York as you went through this journey? It was September 2014. Um, it was, and I, and I can pinpoint it because it was the date that we were asked to present to the um, to the leadership team in New York, and I'd flown in um, for that meeting. And um, we'd prepared this board pack, and I said, I'm actually not going to do, I'm not going to do slides. I'm going to do pictures. And I'd done pictures, and then I spoke about the pictures. And so the pictures were, I had one picture of, um, there's, a, there's a mural of Mandela in Cape Town that's made up of people's hands. And, and I used that to say, actually, you know, together, the global company and the Africa team can make a significant legacy for this for this organization right and if you want to win in africa now but also reap the potential for generations to come you need to take this investment seriously um, another picture was um, there's a there's a really cool photo by a Reuters photographer of a boy leaping um, at devil's falls in zambia and i use that to talk about the idea of risk and and the potential of risk and i really told a story at that executive board meeting and, and I had already done the legwork. We'd already done the legwork to get the stakeholder buy-in. And many of them had already flown to Africa. And so when I brought them these pictures, they were, they were kind of had this awakening, right, of this feeling that they had when they were on the continent. Um, and, and so the, the board meeting went so well. And the, you know, the money that I asked for was given. And everyone was like, oh, this is great. Thank you so much. And, and I walked out feeling like, okay, they're on board. Now, you mentioned a couple of examples where you spent an inordinate amount of time uh, doing stuff which generates no money at all. There is no double entry for it. I guess if it existed, it'd be something like debit, trust, credit, potentially some sort of future P&L. But you did other things as well, which at the time, many might have looked at and, and have thought, these aren't really adding to the bottom line. You mentioned, you know, bringing in graduates who knew that you wouldn't be taking on and looking to JV with some of the financial services companies. Was that the kind of only thing that you did, which, which 
was a long-term play with no short-term benefits expected? We actually, we did lots of long-term things, but what we tried to do was do them as cheaply as possible. So one of the things we wanted to do was set up an innovation lab in, in South Africa. We felt like um, having a lab there would really drive a different level of conversation with our customers and partners. Um, and the cost of setting up a lab like that in New York or London can be millions of dollars. And we didn't have millions of dollars to set it up. And so what we did instead was I, I went to some of our global talent um, pools and said, who who actually in our top innovation um, talent globally wants to come to Africa? And can I get you know the manager of that person to see this as a talent opportunity for them and have them sponsor that person to come to Africa? And so we ended up, I, I found somebody who's amazing. Her name's Saida Carter. And um, her manager and I shared the cost of her coming to South Africa to help us set up the innovation lab. So I got some global expertise for very cheap. I then went to City of Cape Town Innovation Hub and said, we actually don't have a huge amount of money, but we want to be part of your program. And so in Woodstock, we set up an innovation lab with them where we were able to do a bit of a barter deal um, in return for access to our data um, and access to our events and our customers. Um, we actually were allowed to have space um, in, in that in that arena. And then we went with partners, um, you know, some of the banks, some of the corporates, and we said, how do we co-invest in innovation together? And so, you know, for a fraction of what it would have cost us to build a lab, we actually were able to bring some long-term thinking in um, into the organization. And actually, funnily enough, even though we didn't expect it, that resulted in, in three uh, products that have actually scaled globally within the organization um, since we started them. So, so it actually did end up yielding dividend, even though we didn't expect it to. Now, we're, it's, geez, that time has gone so, so quickly. It's frustrating that it goes so quickly. Maybe we'll do another half an hour at some point. <laughs> um, I've got a quick question here, but while I'm asking that, we're going to do a little experiment. You say experiment's good. This probably won't work, but let's give it a go. Shadi, you've got a poll question. Can you release that to the world? Let's see what happens. Uh, while you're doing that as well, I just want to ask a question from another attendee here. Do you feel salespeople or traditional sales is dying in Africa, very pro-digital movement we've got going on. Do we really need people um, to get involved in these sales processes? Many are now capable of doing their own demos, going online and finding out information. I, I think, you know, what's really interesting, this is the version of the question around the fourth industrial revolution of will robots replace jobs? I think robots will replace some jobs and, and digital um, customer engagement will replace some salespeople. Um, but actually, human interaction and human engagement has never been more important. And, and so as we go into a digital era, making sure that you've got people who are really adding higher value. If your salespeople are there just to pitch a standard product, you can do that digitally. If your salespeople are there to uncover value um, and to really understand where your customers are going, you can't do that digitally. And so really understanding what is the role of your, of your salesperson and how are they really adding value into the process and where does that human engagement really mean something to your market and your customers and focusing there and then letting the machines and the digital solutions do the repetitive work um, is actually how we're going to get scale. Right. Um, well, that poll question didn't work particularly well. So uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll look at that next time. Marius, let's bring you into the conversation. And uh, to everyone that doesn't know Marius, he's the COO for IOCO, but more than that, a serial entrepreneur and someone who's a great laugh to be with. But Marius, over to you. Yeah, yeah, Colin, uh, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I've made so many notes here, I don't know where to start, other than to say, um, Sneha, I was wondering why we named this uh, Inspire. I'm sure that our clients 
uh, and our staff that have been honored to understand why the series has been called by Colin and, uh, and the rest of the team inspire. So, so thank you so much for that. I think what was incredible for me is that, um, you know, your authenticity is palpable. So the, when you try to instill a system in your own environment, uh, which is, you know, believe what you believe, I think you have to be authentic as a leader. Uh, and I think clearly within the short space, uh, when we started out, I was wondering how we would get to an hour. And I'm now quite frankly disappointed that it is only an hour. But I think to a large degree, uh, what I would like to do just to wrap up is, is thank you because at IOCO, um, our client success is largely translated into our success. So the more successful our clients are, the more successful we are. And so this series has been pitched not only at our own uh, uh, leadership team and, and staff within, but also at our clients to understand that we're on a new journey. We want to understand what their pain points are. Um, and if we do have uh, a time for a question, Colin, I would have come back to when you said you listen to the customers. I think that's still a nugget that needs to be unpacked clearly because um, listening, doing and acting on it uh, seems to be a lot more difficult. And as I said, because our client success largely determines our success, um, a massive piece of work for us to do in that space. But, but yeah, certainly I think um, um, from our side, uh, just to thank some of the clients, uh, uh, while, while we were on, we had more and more log on. So we've got uh, UCT, Engine, Netcare, Datalogic, MediClinic, uh, all those people, Mimecast, I hope they found it as valuable as we did, Colin. And then um, you know, maybe if you can just give us a small insight as to that listening, you said it was an apology tour, um, because I mean, we do have some clients on, so if we could steal a minute, Colin, would that be all right just to have one question? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. So what, what was that intervention? How did you actually engage with the clients when you went on that time to listen to her? I think the first thing is to, you know, when, when you tell customers you're going to listen, you need to show them that you did something with that because otherwise, you know, you can't keep saying, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear what you have to say if you don't do anything in between. Otherwise, people get tired of telling you what's wrong. Um, and so one of the first things was to, to actually have something tangible out of each listening session um, even if it was a thank you, this was the insight that we gleaned and this is what we're going to do about it. And sometimes the we're going to do something about it isn't, isn't, doesn't have to be revolutionary. Mm -hmm. It should just be, you know, we're going to make sure that we have, you know, sessions with you to go through your feedback once a month or, um, you know, we're going to really take this on board in our management team and we're going to come back to you next quarter with what we changed. But we have to say something back because I think otherwise, you know, it doesn't really show that you've, you've sort of acknowledged you've heard it. Um, and then I think the other thing is really to create ways of listening to your customers or, that isn't just about give me feedback, but actually think about what is it, what does their success actually look like? And so we created an Africa advisory board that was made up of customers, partners, and stakeholders, where we actually brought people together and said, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And actually everyone, and, and what are you passionate about? And everyone around the table was passionate about entrepreneurship. And so we made those advisory sessions, not about us, but actually how do we go after a common goal together? And in that process, we got to listen to our customers quite a lot, but around something that they cared passionately about, um, which then helped us sort of pivot our business. So I think, you know, listening can be done in many ways, but yeah, I think, I think to your point, it's a journey. It's not a one, one thing. I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. It's been tremendous um, to, to be part of this. I think it's such an incredible series. I, I think, you know, EAH, IOCO are just doing an incredible job at driving inspiration and, and showing actually what leadership really looks like in difficult times. 
Um, and I do miss South Africa and I have a lot of optimism for how South Africa is going to come out of this um, because of the leadership that I see in, in organizations like yours. Yes, no, thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Colin. Uh, for, and, and listen, it was a really fantastic and inspiring hour. Um, we definitely will meet again uh, as part of that. And then just before we ring off, uh, Colin, if we can just uh, remind people that despite the fact that our next panelist is John Flismas and everybody knows him merely as a comedian, uh, it is quite interesting to note that his recent MBA, he's been so well received by a whole lot of audience where he makes very complex uh, problems uh, in, and delivers them. In a, he takes very complex situations and articulates them in a very simplified manner. So um, he's got a global platform uh, with the company that he's working with. Uh, and we're looking forward to that session, which will come up next as well. So Please, for those of you that are on the call, make sure that you do dial into the next one. And then, Snaya, thanks again from my side and behalf of Ayoka and Colin. Well done for always making sure you make the hour go quickly. <laughs> Thank you, Morris. So I'll just close out. I'm going to do something which I've never done before, and it's asked for 60 seconds of people's time. It puts us two minutes over. That's to allow all the participants that are still here to put any feedback or thoughts down in the chat there. So if you've got any ideas, well, it could be anything you want. More of this, different stuff what you got out of it, what you don't like, it don't matter. We're going to be totally open and transparent. We trust you to put um, whatever you want down there. And Schneer, as the closeout, there's one analogy I'd like you to leave people with, which has stuck with me since you told me, and it relates to the diversity and rocks. Do you know the one I'm on about? Yes. Please, could you so, close out with that because it's powerful? Yeah. So, I, you know, when we did this in our leadership team where we said, what is our leadership team? And we came up with, we're a bucket of rocks. And, and that may sound really bad because it may make us sound really dumb, but the idea of a bucket of rocks is when you have a bucket of different rocks in a, in, you know, all to put together, and then you, you basically you swivel it around and the rocks bop up against each other. They actually polish each other and they make each other better. And when you come out of sort of having a bucket of rocks that's thrown around together in difficult circumstances, you'll come out with some real gems. So that's the analogy. And I, I really hope that um, all of you sort of do something similar with your leadership teams. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Thank you very much. Marius, thank you. thank you to everyone that dialed in. Thank you. Look forward to chatting you to you uh, this time next week. And yes to the questions. There will be recordings of this posted on social media and other channels, so you should be able to get hold of it. Thank you very much, everyone. Stay safe. Thanks. Bye.